Okay, let's uh, move into our time of study and uh, let's get some food from God's Word together, shall we? Well, we are carrying on in our study through the book of Daniel. So we are now in Daniel chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, which I'm sure you have, if you want to turn to chapter two, you know, there's all sorts of great portions of scripture. There's some great candidates for, you know, your favorite chapter and so on. But this chapter, chapter two of the book of Daniel has got to be up there. It's such an incredible account. It's got everything. It's got all the mystery, the intrigue. It's got the excitement, danger. It's got this incredible prophetic span uh, that we're going to look at that just again give us an absolute confidence that what we see in God's word really is God's word. So let's jump into the text. Um, just to remind you, Daniel, young 14-year-old or thereabouts, a uh, Jewish boy, taken captive from his homeland in about 606 BC, so about 600 years before the time of Jesus. He and his three friends, if you remember, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, to give them their proper Hebrew names that glorify God, uh, they were put into this intensive three-year training program so that they could become advisors to the king. Uh, and yet Daniel purposed in his heart not to be defiled by the extravagance and the excess that Babylon offered. And of course, you know, they're just young men and they're thrust into this situation where, you know, incredible opportunities are, are there before them, you know, and this faith they have, this trust in God, that in the midst of this pagan culture where, as we said the other week, you know, nobody would have known if they'd have gone off and, you know, enjoyed a, a nice peppercorn steak and, you know, with all the trimmings and everything else, you know, and even those things necessarily weren't wrong, but they chose to live this pure godly life in the midst of this pagan environment. At the end of this three-year program, Daniel and his friends, if you remember last time, at the end of chapter one, were told that they were found 10 times better uh, than the others that were in this training program with them. Now, these would have been other individuals, not necessarily from Israel. They could have come from other countries that Babylon had subdued. So the chapter breakdown we have, first six chapters, really kind of one group on their own. We see Daniel, as we've seen already, deported as a teenager. Second chapter we're looking at now, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which we'll look at in a moment. The third chapter, this fiery furnace situation. And then the fourth chapter, God brings judgment upon Nebuchadnezzar because of his pride. Then we get to the fall of Babylon itself as the Medo-Persian Empire come in and take over. Uh, and that follows then this lion's den, very famous account that we have in Daniel chapter 6. Uh, Daniel would have been an old man by that time. Often we think of him being young, but and we'll see as we go through. But interestingly, that section is all in Aramaic. Then Daniel's vision in chapter 7, which seems to parallel what we'll be looking at this morning in chapter two. And we'll look at it in detail when we get there. And then the second section of the book, really, from chapter seven through 12, uh, we have this vision of the four beasts, uh, which we'll deal with, of course, the ram and the he-goat, very much looking at the kingdom of Greece and some of the things that will come about as a result of uh, Alexander's rule reign and what happened to the empire after him. Uh, and then we have probably the most incredible prophecy in the Bible, uh, the 70-week prophecy that Gabriel gives to Daniel to give us this incredible picture and plan of the future of the nation of Israel. 
Then we get a really interesting glimpse of the spiritual realm, the things we don't normally get to see, but it's revealed in chapter 10 for us. Then, often called by uh, commentators and so on, the silent years. This is the period between the end of the, the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. There's about a 400-year period there. But actually, it's not silent at all, because Daniel chapter 11 actually records the events through that period of time in advance. Uh, and it's a staggering portion of scripture because of the prophecies it contains. And then finally, chapter 12 rounds everything off, leading us effectively into the new eternal order that we'll, we'll see as we go through. through. So, And that last section of the book is all in uh, Hebrew, back to Hebrew again. So now I just want to highlight that the chronological order is not quite the same as the way the chapters are laid out. So chapter one, of course, is at the beginning of the book. Chapter two, then chapter three, chapter four. Then it's chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter five, six. It kind of goes back and then chapters nine, 10 through 12. But if you look at the dates now, this is really interesting and significant in the light of what we'll look at this morning. The second chapter would occur, and we'll look at the details of this, in 604 BC. That's only two years after the Babylonian captivity begins. So the Nebuchadnezzar visiting Jerusalem and taking away Daniel and his friends and so on. So just two years later now is the events that we'll be looking at in this chapter. Why is that interesting? Well, we'll see as we go into the text. So let's look. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, And in the second year... Of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep broke from him. So you could probably refer to these as nightmares rather than just dreams, uh, so much so that he kind of wakes up uh, in the midst of this dream because he was so troubled by the images and by the things that he sees. Now, this is the interesting bit. We've said already that Jehoiakim's third year uh, was 606. We saw that in Daniel chapter 1. That's when the siege takes place. And of course, we have the first siege of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar becomes king that year. It's his ascension year. All right. So it's the first. It's not the what is counted the first year of his reign. It's counted as the ascension year. That's the way the Babylonians counted their uh, their king's reigns. So that was the last year that his father, Nebuchadnezzar, was king. So it's counted as Nebuchadnezzar's ascension year. But it was also, and this is the important bit, it was Daniel's first year that he's then put into this training program that we mentioned a moment ago, as we saw last week. That means that the following year, because we're counting down BC, uh, 605 BC, then become Nebuchadnezzar's first year as the king. Okay, so the 606 is ascension year. And the first year that's counted as the first year of his reign proper was then 605 BC. That's Daniel's second year in training. And this is where the interesting part comes in, because in 604 BC, we have Nebuchadnezzar's second year as king. And it's Daniel's third year in training. Now, if you remember what we're told at the beginning of this and in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. So the events that we're looking at now are actually in Daniel's third year of training. The assumption often is made that as we go into chapter two, Daniel has finished his training and he's now standing before the king in the court of the king to give advice. That's where chapter one ends. But actually, there's a little bit of an overlap here, because what it means is that Daniel was still in training when the events we're about to read took place. 
So he hadn't yet been formally introduced to the king. He didn't know the king. He hadn't been uh, uh, that, that accolade that we have at the end of chapter uh, one, where it speaks about him being 10 times better. That yet wasn't known. So we're kind of jumping just to uh, slightly before that in time. So we read in verse two, then this is as a result of the dream. Then the king commanded to all the magicians. And if you remember, we talked about this last time, these four groups that existed in Babylon, the Magi, the astrologers, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were native to Babylon. It was kind of they were the um, the homegrown talent, if you like, that were advisors to the king. They saw themselves as being the rightful ones who should advise the king and looked seemingly with disdain on these other groups. But they, uh, the king commanded all these groups, the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers and Chaldeans, for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. Now you get the impression that this had happened in the past and they were kind of used to the process. But <clears throat> what we see here is there's a power struggle that's going on between the Magi, particularly the astrologers, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans. There was no love lost between these groups. They were all vying for permission, uh, for, for position. They were all looking to be regarded by the king as his best and most trusted advisors and the ones that he should turn to. And the others, as far as they were concerned, should all be uh, ignored practically. So the Magi we mentioned previously were this priestly order of the Medes. Um, their order was hereditary, um, so a little bit like the Levitical priesthood, but they were renowned for astronomy, okay, the study of the stars, but they also fell into astrology, which is the not good thing, which is the reading of the stars, and sadly many people fall into that today. They think that the stars can tell them something about their future. Not true. Um, and so they were recognized as dream interpreters. Um, so this was kind of their bag, in a sense. Uh, this opportunity presents itself, uh, and they would be normally considered probably the, the first ones to go forward here. But the Chaldeans, as we mentioned, being of Babylonian descent, saw themselves as the true counsellors to the king. So given the context, we read in verse 3, And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spoke the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, Notice this. This, is, this gives you a little hint here. So the Chaldeans step up first and they speak to the king in their own language. So this is, again, a little bit of a play for power. They're trying to put the other groups down. They're trying to say, you know, king, you should listen to us. And they say, oh, king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. You, you can even detect in the English this kind of... Uh, almost pride and arrogancy there that the Chaldeans are saying, you know, you can ignore the others. We're the ones that are going to help you. We're going to tell you the truth of this. Now, just as an aside, we've mentioned dreams already this morning in our service, but the Lord does speak through dreams. In Job 33, uh, verse 14 and 15, we read this. For God speaks once, yes, twice, yet a man perceives it not. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men and slumberings upon the bed. So there we have in the book of Job this statement that God does speak in dreams. It's incredible. You can go through history and there's all sorts of accounts of individuals whom the Lord has spoken to in a dream. There are, of course, many examples in Scripture uh, that we could cite. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, we read there, It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, that I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, 
and your young man shall see vision, visions, and your old man shall dream dreams. So once again, clearly scripture saying that dreams are a way that God will communicate with people. In Ecclesiastes 5 verse 3, it says, For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. So once again, speaking of a dream that comes, that brings instruction or brings information. Um, now, there's actually a number of dreamers uh, in the Bible. Of course, Abraham uh, falls into a deep sleep in Genesis 15 and has a dream about his future and his descendants and so on. Uh, Abimelech, uh, also in Genesis uh, 20, situation with Abraham, has a dream one night regarding the situation with Sarah, who had been taken into his harem, uh, albeit temporarily. Uh, Jacob, if you remember, on his way out of the land, has a dream in Genesis 31. Laban also uh, has a dream uh, in Genesis 31 also. Uh, Joseph, uh, we're familiar with the dreams that he has and shares with his brethren. Not uh, They didn't go down too well to start with. Pharaoh also dreams, those famous dreams that actually provide the opportunity for Joseph's rise to, uh, to fame and to popularity and to, to position, which obviously the Lord engineered. Solomon, again, had uh, dreams. We read that First Kings 3, 5. Joseph, and the New Testament, of course, had a dream and is warned by an angel in the dream to take Mary as his wife and not to be afraid. Uh, and of course, the Magi themselves later. Now, this is the same group of people that we're speaking about in Daniel, the Magi. Later on, the descendants of those Magi end up traveling to Israel to look for the rightful king of the Jews. Interesting, we'll comment on that in a short while. But uh, in their situation, after they've been to see Herod, they are warned in a dream not to return the same way that they'd come because Herod, of course, was after this young child who they'd come to worship and to acknowledge as the rightful king of Israel. And so verse four again, then spoke the Chaldeans to the king of Syriac, O king of forever, tell thy servants a dream and we will show the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the thing is gone from me. And if you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made a dunghill. That's the king's incentive program to help the Chaldeans realize that they must do this. This is very important. Uh, they fulfill the king's request. Now, there is some debate amongst scholars as to exactly what's going on here, because the statement is, the king says, the thing is gone from me. Now, it could be that the king is saying, I've forgotten the dream. I can't remember it. It's gone from my mind. And so I want you to tell me what I've dreamed. Alternatively, and there are a number of scholars that go down this path, they think that actually the king is saying, no, the decree has gone forth from my mouth. I'm not going to change my mind. I want you to tell me what the interpretation of the dream is, and I'm not going to help you. So one school says that the king has forgotten it. The other school of thought suggests that the king hasn't forgotten it, but he's simply saying the decree, the thing has gone from me. I'm not going to tell you again. I just want you to interpret so it could be either of those. In a sense, it doesn't really matter because uh, it leaves the Chaldeans in this same predicament that they're being told that if they don't interpret, then they're going to be cut in pieces uh, and their houses and obviously their posterity, their, their children, their offspring and everything else can be made a dunghill. So it's a threat to them and their families. So the king asked for this interpretation of the dream. As we said already, the Chaldeans offered to go first and it seems to be a deliberate attempt to upstage the Magi. Again, the king explains that he cannot remember or wanted to test them either way. Uh, so the Chaldeans soon wished that they'd let the Magi go first. 
And uh, we read verse 6, But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, you shall receive of me gifts. So this is the king now giving uh, this promise of rewards. He says, rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. Just need to mention that these individuals, it would seem, were the advisors that had stood with Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nebuchadnezzar. So this is the old guard, if you want. These are the people that had advised Nebuchadnezzar's dad. And it would seem that Nebuchadnezzar didn't really trust them. And this is why this may well be a test that he was putting forward, that he could have remembered it, but wasn't going to tell them because he didn't really trust them and wanted to see what they were going to say. Um, And if you remember, of course, Nebuchadnezzar is in the process of training up his own counsellors. All right. And that's the team that Daniel's part of, part of that three year training program. So these individuals that are called before the king at this point were most likely the older generation that advised his father that seemingly he doesn't trust all that much. Because we then read verse seven. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show thee the interpretation of it. King Nebuchadnezzar seems to kind of rumble it and says the king answered and said, I know of a certainty that you would gain time. In other words, I know you're just trying to stall for time because you see the thing is gone from me. Once again, it could be the decree is gone from me or that the dream is, I've forgotten it. Either way, it doesn't change the, the situation. Um, but clearly the king is saying that I, I know you're just trying to buy time here. Uh, so he doesn't trust them. But if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For you have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak to speak before me uh, till the time be changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me the interpretation thereof. So that would suggest maybe that the king says that if you tell me uh, what the dream is, uh, I will know, and if you tell me the interpretation, I'm going to know. In other words, it could imply that he still understood the dream. Uh, but as I say, it's not really a, an important point because the problem that the Chaldeans have is that they have no idea. And of course, they have no way of knowing what the king had dreamed. And indeed, they were just looking to buy time. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar not particularly happy at this stage. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, there is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that are such things. And notice what they say at any magician or any magi or astrologer or Chaldean. Notice which they put first. You know, our king, it's impossible. There's there's no ruler on earth that would ask such a a, a preposterous thing, is really what they're saying. Uh, And you wouldn't ask any magi or astrologer or, and they put themselves last, or Chaldean. And he says, and it is a rare thing that the king requires, and that there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Well, and of course is the position of the Chaldeans. That's what they perceived and what they believed. What they didn't understand was, of course, that there was the promise that God would come and dwell with mankind. And of course, in the New Testament, we get to John chapter one, verse 14, and we read, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. You know, this is a statement that tells us that God indeed did come and dwell 
among mankind. So for the Chaldeans, their perception at that time was indeed right, but they hadn't understood the promises uh, and the prophecies that had already been given in God's word, that God indeed would be the one who would come. And of course, we go back to Genesis chapter 22, uh, where Abraham prophetically says God will provide himself a lamb as an atonement for sin. And so these promises had already been given. The Chaldeans not aware of this, of course, uh, and they make the statement that, you know, the gods do not live among men. Uh, well, it's true that there is no other God uh, than the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But he did come and dwell among human flesh. Verse 12 carries on. For this cause, the king was angry and very furious. Now, you'll find that Nebuchadnezzar is not the kind of individual you want to provoke to anger. Uh, and we read, and he commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. That encompasses the whole group of these individuals. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. So not only the old guard who'd given advice at this point or trying to give advice um, to Nebuchadnezzar, seemingly his father's counsellors, but also this training program that he's setting up. Nebuchadnezzar says, be done with the whole lot. Just kill the whole lot of them. I don't want any of them around. None of them are any good to me. But notice uh, they sought Daniel and his fellows. Daniel wasn't there because Daniel was still in this training program. So he wasn't standing before the king at this point. Verse 14, then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, this is this individual that we looked at last week who had purposed in his heart not to be defiled. And so he answers with counsel and with wisdom. God giving him this wisdom. God giving him the words to say. And he answers with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard. Interesting character, this Arioch will comment in a moment. Uh, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. And he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the king? And then Arioch made known the thing, sorry, made the thing known to Daniel. So once again, Daniel wasn't there. He wasn't the firsthand uh, a, a recipient of the information that had come from Nebuchadnezzar of what was going to happen. That They were going to kill them all and make their houses dunghills. Um, so Daniel asks what's going on, why all this haste and everything else. And Ariok then explains to Daniel what's going on. So Daniel, his friends still in their, their training program, haven't yet finished their probation period, uh, haven't yet had this opportunity to come and stand before the king. Verse 16 carries on. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king. And this is incredible. The, the Jews call this chutzpah. Uh, he went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. Well, this is not like the Chaldeans had done, just trying to buy time. He says, no, king, just give me some time, and I will make known to you the interpretation. And it's quite a staggering step of faith on behalf of Daniel. But, of course, Daniel was a godly young man. He, as we mentioned last time, brought up in a godly family. They'd given him a godly name, and not content to... Uh, enjoy the, the pleasures of sin or the, the fineries of Babylon, wanted to just serve God, purposed in his heart not to be defiled. And so had this relationship, this love relationship with God and trusted God. Uh, and clearly God gives him this wisdom to know what to do. And so it says to the king, look, give me time and I will make you known the interpretation. And then I love these verses. I think they're some of the, the most comical in the Bible, in a sense. Verse 17, then Daniel went to his house 
and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Now, you, you just got to picture the scene here. The Daniel gets home and says, hey, guys, have you heard what's going on? And no doubt they'd have said, yeah, we've heard the rumors. They're going to kill us all. Yeah, well, I've got this great plan. I've told the king that we're going to give him the interpretation. And you can just imagine that, that stunned silence for a second. And Hananiah and Michelle and Azariah just look at Daniel and you go, you, you did what? You just, you know, you kind of sometimes need people in your lives that will push you forward in your walk with the Lord, that will kind of put you in a position where you know you have to trust God. They remove every other option. And that's what Daniel does. Uh, he didn't consult with his friends CBB before he went to Arioch. Uh, he just goes and says, no, 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 let me speak to the king, speaks to the king, and now comes back and says to his friend, this is what we are going to do. Um, and he says that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret. Now, I bet at this point they are desiring mercies of the God of heaven concerning the secret that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So none can interpret or even seemingly remember the dream. So the king decrees that all should be killed. Daniel, still in his training period, as we said, Here's if there's some petitions the king for the time uh, to seek his God to get an answer. And then Daniel goes home and gives the good news to his friends. Now, you can just imagine this. Guess what, guys? The king has had a dream. No one could figure it out. So he's going to kill all of us. But I told him that me and my buddies will be able to work it out. How cool is that? And you just get that sense that Daniel was genuinely excited about this opportunity to glorify God. But you can kind of hear that reply. You know, you did what? And something tells me that Daniel did not need to encourage them to pray hard that evening. You know, what did they pray? We're not told. We're not given the words. But I wonder if it would have been something along the lines of these words from Psalm 31. We read there, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Bow down thine ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock for a house of defense to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net that they have laid privily for me. For thou art my strength. Again, Psalm 27 is a prayer that Daniel may well have prayed and his friends. In the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. And now shall my head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yet I will sing praise unto the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. Now, again, those are the kind of prayers. We don't know exactly what they prayed, but it no doubt would have been in line with Scripture. We've said before that when we pray, one of the best ways to pray is in accord with Scripture, even using the very words of Scripture. And Psalms, of course, is a great place to go to get a real expression uh, of what we're feeling in so many different situations that we're faced with. We read in verse 19, Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Well, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. 
He removes kings and setteth up kings. He gives wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. He reveals the deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who has given me wisdom and might and has made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. A great prayer response. We're told in the New Testament, of course, that we should pray. We shouldn't be anxious for anything, but pray. And that we should give God thanks for his answers. And Daniel here, a great model of an individual who prayed. Not only did he seek God and petition God in faith, you know, he had no option here. There was, if this didn't work, as it were, he was going to be killed. So he goes to God in faith. And it wasn't just a, a hope this works out because he'd already gone and told the king that he would give him the interpretation. Daniel had absolute confidence that God was in this situation that seemed impossible, but that God was in this and God would lead it or lead him through this. And of course, now he gets his answer and he thanks God uh, for God's faithfulness and giving him this understanding of what the king had dreamed. Verse 24 carries on. Uh, Therefore, Daniel went in unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went and said thus unto him, destroy not the wise men of Babylon. And by the way, the implication there behind the, the wise men implies the Magi. Daniel seems to plead specifically for the Magi. Uh, Bring me in before the king and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Now, you've got to remember that Ariok here is in his position um, that he's been told now to kill all these wise men and these uh, Chaldeans and astrologers and all, all this group of people and all these young people that are in this training program. And Daniel kind of gives him a way out. Now, verse 25 is interesting. Then Ariok brought in Daniel before the king in haste. So obviously you, you get the, the, the intensity of this and said thus unto him. Now, notice this. I have found a man of the captives of Judah. Isn't that just the way it is? You know, kind of management like to take the credit for what the staff have done. Uh, And Ariok here steps forward and says, well, King, I have found a man. He didn't find Daniel. Daniel went to him. Daniel was the one that asked him the question. And Daniel was the one that came back to him with the solution. But of course, Ariok wants to uh, do something to uh, further his own career. So he says, I have found a man of the captives of Judah. Uh, that will make known unto the king the interpretation, boldly making this uh, this statement to the king. So Daniel receives this interpretation again from the Lord, uh, and then seemingly inexplicably asks for the wise men, the magi, to be spared. Now we'll, we'll understand more as we go through Scripture, um, but subsequently Daniel is appointed as, in the words of Jeremiah thirty-nine, Rab Mag. Strange term to our ears, but it means chief of the magi. And we'll see this also in Daniel chapter four, verse nine, when we get there. But Daniel is appointed as the leader of this uh, Medes, Medan um, priestly group of individuals. He's appointed as their leader. Now, I've mentioned earlier, they were a hereditary group. So Daniel had no real right to do that, but he's put in this position of authority over the rest of the Magi. Now, we haven't got time to go into the details, but seemingly Daniel shares with them some of the incredible prophecies and the dreams that he himself gets. 
And we see the Magi pop up a number of times through Scripture. Uh, and this group are very, very interesting. Of course, one of their principal roles was to appoint and to advise kings. Notice that, that one of the roles they had was to appoint kings. And we'll talk about this in a little while. Uh, but it seems that uh, Daniel entrusted this elite group with one of the most treasured secrets of all time. And that is that God would become incarnate, that God would come and dwell amongst human flesh. Now, through the centuries, the Magi waited until 2 BC. So some 600 years or so from this point, And they look up and they see a new star and they begin their journey to this Roman occupied Jerusalem. Now, at that time, the Parthian Empire, of which the Medes became part of, was in bitter conflict with the Roman Empire. And there was like this kind of buffer zone of which Israel was really the the kind of the, the line between the two. And so they arrive, these Magi arrive in Jerusalem looking for the one who had been born king of the Jews. Now, of course, from our Christmas narratives, we're so used to the idea of having three kings and so on. They weren't kings. Uh, They didn't ride on camels. Uh, They were horse riding, as typically Persians were, and their job was to appoint kings. They were king makers, in a sense. And they come typically with an entourage of about a thousand or more, and they arrive in Jerusalem. Now, seemingly, this is all a result of what took place in chapter 2 of Daniel and onwards, as we'll see. We're told when they arrive in Jerusalem at the time, or just after Jesus is born, Jesus would have been about two years old by this point. Now, all Jerusalem, we're told, was troubled. Now, that wouldn't happen if three old doddery characters arrive on their camels. But if an entourage of a thousand or so outriders with these Persian kingmakers arrive, saying, where is the king of the Jews? Because if you remember, Herod was this Idumean. He wasn't uh, rightfully a king of, uh, of Judea or of Israel. He's simply been appointed by Rome. And when the Magi arrived, they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That's a picture by Giovanni. Uh, entitled The Journey of the Magi. Uh, This is, you can see them riding horses for a start. Uh, You know, our our tradition has managed to corrupt so much of what we understand or to shape what we we think we understand. Um, There's another picture by Botticelli there, uh, referred to as the Adoration of the Magi. Once again, you see uh, a number of individuals, again, arriving on horses and so on. This is something that history has obfuscated and we see our typical Christmas cards uh, with these individuals bearing their apparently three gifts and so on that's where the three comes from uh jesus said that they've invalidated the word of god uh, by their tradition uh they're speaking to the jewish leadership but it's the same today uh, and so on but you know the interesting thing is that we have with the christmas uh story as we refer to it we have these two groups we have the shepherds and we have the magi and sadly, both are misunderstood. The shepherds were specifically chosen because they came to acknowledge that Jesus was the rightful lamb without blemish. That's why they came. The Magi come to acknowledge that Jesus is the rightful king. We sing songs about the lion and the lamb. They speak of his first coming and the second coming. There was a space of time between the Magi and the shepherds. The shepherds came first. Jesus came as that lamb to suffer. The Magi then come to anoint Jesus as king. Jesus, when he rules and when he returns a second time, will return to rule and reign. The whole Christmas narrative is speaking of the first and second coming of Jesus. And it's speaking again of his purity as a spotless lamb, but his right to rule as king. 
Anyway, let's move on. <clears throat> the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king uh, and said, The secret which the king has dreamed uh, cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king. Now, this is fantastic because if you remember, Arioch has boldly stepped forward and said, King, I found a man who can interpret the dream. And so the king says to Daniel, Is it true? Can you interpret my dream? And the king, and Daniel says, No, king, I can't. Nobody can. And you just kind of get that sense at that point, Arioch suddenly goes really white and pale, feeling that he's now going to be in a real predicament. But that's exactly what Daniel says. He says, the secret which the king has demanded, cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show unto the king? And in fact, he says, king, nobody can tell you the interpretation. And I'm sure that part of that is just so that Arioch's put in his place uh, for his uh, little bit of pride a moment ago. But then Daniel carries on and says this, but there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. And it's interesting because Daniel says the dream and the visions of the head upon thy bed. It almost implies that the Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and we see the next verse again seem to confirm this, have been thinking about these things when he went to bed. And then ends up dreaming about them, which is not un uncommon. He says, as for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? Now, it may not be obvious as you look at that, but it implies that that's what the king had been thinking about. He'd been thinking about these things on his bed and fallen asleep and then had these dreams. Uh, what should um, come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. And Daniel again reminds the king that it's not about him. Daniel giving the glory to God. He says, but as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living. But for their sakes, uh, that shall make known the interpretation to the king and that thou mightest know the thoughts uh, of thine heart. Thou, O king. Okay, and so this is now the interpretation that Daniel is going to give of this dream. Or, or rather, first of all, this, this is the dream itself. So Daniel is going to give the dream and then he's going to interpret it in a moment. Thou, O king, sawest and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. I mean, this was something that really would have stirred Nebuchadnezzar to the point that he woke up seeing this incredible image. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass and his legs of iron and his feet part of iron and part of clay. So there's five parts to this image. Thou sawest till a stone was cut without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and become like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Now, straight away, you get in that verse 36, the implication that Daniel wasn't there on his own, that his three friends who had been up 
through the night praying with him, had also come and stepped forward with the king. They're all four of them are there before the king. And he says, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. So the image that we see has this head of gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, the legs made of iron, and then finally the toes and the feet made of iron mixed with clay. So that's the, the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream and clearly didn't understand what all of this meant. <clears throat> We're told that the stone then will come, uh, will cut without hands, smash the feet to pieces. Uh, and as a result of this, then this mountain uh, comes that will fill the whole earth. So Daniel then explains the dream uh, and gives interpretation. Uh, he basically is going to say that there's going to be four great empires that are going to follow on from Babylon. And at the end of days, the God of heaven is going to establish his throne and rule over the whole earth. And his is going to be a kingdom without end. So that's, that's what we're going to see Daniel explain. So let's go to verse 37. Thou, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given thee. Now, notice what Daniel's saying to the king. He's saying God has given you. Right? Nebuchadnezzar misses the point of this, um, but we'll see that that is reiterated again in subsequent chapters. That the God of heaven has given thee a kingdom, power and strength and glory. In other words, you haven't got it because you're great or powerful, but God has given it to you. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven has he given into thine hand and has made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. I'm sure the king was very pleased to hear that. It's just saying how great, how powerful he's become. And he's got this incredible power. Whatever he says goes. Now, that wasn't going to be the case with subsequent empires that, that rose onto the world scene. Nebuchadnezzar had this autonomy, this ability to make decisions, irrespective of any other rules or laws or anything else. And he, Daniel says, King, you are the head of gold. By the way, as like a spoiler for next week, if the Lord tarries, when we get into chapter three, okay, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to build himself an image made entirely of gold. In other words, it's an act of defiance saying, you know what? I don't want to give in to any other empires. I want to be the whole thing. Nevertheless, we'll look at that next week. So we're told that Babylon itself is this head of gold, this rule, this kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. And of course, Babylon was in power from 606 BC to 539 BC. The area that Babylon covered, if you look at the area of the Middle East, uh, it's a large geographical area uh, spanning the Tigris, the Euphrates rivers, all the way through what we call the Fertile Crescent and down, including the, the southern part of today, what we consider Turkey and into Israel. Uh, all came under the, the, the might, the jurisdiction of Babylon in this period of time. But then Daniel goes on and says, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. Well, we know from history that that is exactly what happened, that after Babylon came the Persian Empire. Now, that ruled from 539 BC to 332 BC. You know, and the other interesting thing here, of course, is that the Babylon itself was full of gold, golden temples, golden altars, all, all sorts of things. But gold was the currency of Babylon. In Persia, they had silver coins, 
uh, and it became the currency of the empire. So it's not just a random choice of metals here. Uh, there's other interesting asides of the, the metals that are, are depicted and so on. Um, the specific gravity is different with each of them as well, coming down from gold down all the way down to the bottom. But when we look at the Persian Empire, that's the Babylonian one you can see there. Uh, the Persian Empire dwarfed it, completely dwarfed it. You look at the size and the scale. So not only now uh, spreading out much further to the east, but also encompassing all of what we consider Turkey and then right up to the border of Greece and then on North Africa and going down into uh, all of Egypt area and down through to Ethiopia. So the whole of this region, including Israel, of course, was then taken over by the Persian Empire. And of course, Cyrus was this king that had uh, come onto the scene as the Babylonian Empire falls. Cyrus is the one that steps up and uh, is the one that enters into Babylon without a fight, without a battle. We'll talk about that in chapter four. Uh, chapter five uh, and interestingly um isaiah 45 prophesied cyrus's conquest of babylon back in isaiah uh, 45 and this was again a couple of hundred years before the events uh took place uh, so it's just incredible and apparently daniel met cyrus at the gate of babylon and presented him with this prophecy from the book of isaiah um, so interesting things, Cyrus and, and Daniel, uh, we understand, uh, became uh, good friends. And we'll talk about them more as we go through our study. So then the verse 39 carries on. And another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. Well, of course, the kingdom that followed after the Medo-Persian Empire was the kingdom of Greece. And that goes from 332 B.C., right up to the beginning of the Roman Empire, 68 BC. This is the kingdom that was established swiftly by Alexander the Great. Now, once again, you look at, that's the Persian Empire, you can see, uh, and then we show over the later that the extent of the Greek Empire, uh, even further reach, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, sorry, uh, Alexander the Great apparently lamented uh, about 30 years of age, uh, wept because there were no more lands to be conquered. All the powers that existed, he's subdued by that point. Uh, of course, very famous individual from history, Alexander the Great. Um, but his kingdom eventually uh, was broken up after Alexander died, but the kingdom remained, but it was split between his four generals. And this is given in detail for us in Daniel chapter 11. Cassandra took the area of Greece uh, and Turkey, so on, uh, like Zimachus like, uh, like took that. Uh, then we had the two that we're most interested in from a biblical perspective, uh, the Seleucid Empire, which covered all of the area of Babylon and Iran, Iraq, as we would think of it today, through into India. And then you have Ptolemy, uh, who was, these are all four generals of Neb of. Um, uh, Alexander the Great. And Ptolemy takes the area of Egypt uh, and down into North Africa and so on. And there's this rivalry between the Ptolemaic Empire and the Seleucid Empire. And of course, right in the middle of that is the land of Israel, which is why it's so significant from a biblical 
perspective and there'll be much in the book of Daniel to come that will detail the events that will take place uh, yet future from this point uh, in this area and as I said already um, the people talk about the silent years those 400 years between the old testament and the new testament but we'll see they're all detailed in advance in Daniel chapter 11. So back into the text, verse 40, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks uh, all things, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. Now unlike the previous empires, Rome was never defeated. Uh, it divided into the eastern and western legs. The eastern leg uh, outlasted the western by almost a thousand years. But you know, since its demise, almost all the parts that made up the old empire, uh, Roman Empire, have had their day at ruling. Of course, there was the Ottoman Turks, the French under Napoleon, the Germans, the Dutch, the Spanish, and of course the British Empire. And even America uh, was founded by people from the old Roman Empire. So as we come to this verse, we're told uh, this phase of the Roman Empire uh, is coming, of which history knows nothing. So again, Rome in phase one, which clearly is explained there. But then this part of this iron, which is partly clay as well, uh, mixed together. Uh, and it seems to be, and most commentators uh, understand this, that there is a phase of the Roman Empire that is yet to be. So whereas all the previous empires were defeated, Rome was never defeated. It just kind of fizzled out. But the various parts of it, as we mentioned, all have had their chance at ruling. But scripturally, it seems that this Roman Empire is going to come back together in the last days. And these 10 toes will represent 10 kings who are going to have authority and rule and reign at the same time. And that's significant. Again, we look at the scope of the Roman Empire and you just get to see just how vast it was. It didn't spread as far to the east as the previous Greek and Persian empires had, but in terms of spreading westward, uh, all of North Africa and, of course, into uh, Greece and Italy and Spain and what we tend to consider most of Europe today, including this country. But that, of course, laid the foundation for the gospel to be spread because the Greek language by then was the common language, which was a language that had gone throughout the world, but also the Romans put this infrastructure in place, uh, roads going everywhere. Romans, of course, were famous for building their roads, uh, and it just made the spread of the gospel so incredibly easy at the time that God did it. God chose the right moment in history to bring Jesus into the world so that the gospel could be proclaimed to the world. All of this was part of God's plan. Verse 42, let's carry on. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay. So the kingdom, this coming kingdom, shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they, now you should be troubled by that word, and I'll come back to it in a second, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. What we're seeing here is that there's a group that referred to that mingle themselves with the seed of men. By definition, they cannot be the seed of men. What is it referring to? It's referring to some group that mingle themselves with mankind, but that are not mankind. And it says, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Now, there is all sorts of conjecture about this. Some believe that this could imply a return of the Nephilim, 
that we read about in Genesis chapter 6. And there are many competent scholars that hold that position. Others think this could have some reference to cloning in the days in which we're living. Of course, we know there's all sorts of genetic experiments that are taking place and the boundaries are being pushed back all the time. But, you know, if they produce a human clone, let me ask the question, is that human clone an individual that could be saved? Because it wouldn't be direct a direct creation of God in that sense. It would be a result of man's engineering. Would a clone have a soul? Lots of interesting thoughts and questions around this whole issue. What we do know is that there is going to be some entity, be it Nephilim, be it clone, whatever, that are going to have some political sway in the future, and they are going to mix with and mingle with the seed of man and obviously have some involvement in the coming world empire. It's quite scary when you stop and think through the implications of all these things and all that is going on. Verse 44, but in the days of these kings, now this is the good news, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Let me read that again. We need to keep that in our minds all the time. That this kingdom is going to be set up and it shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. So all that has gone before it is going to be subdued by this kingdom that God himself will establish. Now, this is the kingdom from heaven that is spoken of 32 times in Matthew's gospel. Matthew presents his gospel as uh, that of the coming king, the Messiah, the one who's to rule and reign. And this coming kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is often referred to, but it's really the kingdom from heaven that God is going to establish on earth. Many scriptures refer to this. We haven't got time to go into it, but one, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 32, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and many other places, if you want to do some more background on that. It's going to be an earthly kingdom. Uh, it's going to be a subset of the kingdom of God, where God rules and reigns over all things, but this kingdom will be God's kingdom on earth. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and then it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Notice it goes back the other way there, the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king, to Nebuchadnezzar, what shall come to pass hereafter. And the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. So as the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, the Greek and the Roman empires were all literal earthly empires that came to pass, as Daniel foretold, so will God's kingdom be. You know, there are those that question uh, whether there'll be a literal kingdom. They think of it as some sort of allegorical kingdom and so on. And many through the history of the church have tried to uh, allegorize these things. But this is clear that Daniel's saying that just as all the other kingdoms were real kingdoms, so this final kingdom will be a real kingdom too. Now, just very briefly, the subject of eschatology, it's just a fancy word that uh, scholars use to speak about the end times, can really be broken down into two sections. You have a millennial and pre-millennial. Okay, the amillennialists don't believe there will be a literal millennium where Jesus will rule and reign on earth. The pre-millennialists believe that Jesus will return literally and establish his throne in his kingdom because that's what scripture teaches. There is a, another view, a post-millennial, which suggests that there will be a period of peace on earth and that Jesus will return after that period of time. 
in essentially, essentially that doesn't really fit into either camp and it doesn't really have any scriptural support anyway. Um, with the amillennialists, there's another group that you may have heard the title uh, preterism. And it's the idea that all of the prophecies in scripture were fulfilled by AD 70, including the return of Christ. Well, of course, the world knows nothing of that. And Revelation and the book of Matthew 24 and so on make it clear that when Jesus returns, the whole world will know. And yet there are many that try and get away from any potential future fulfillment of prophecy, trying to say that it's all been done. Now, with the pre-millennialists, there are three positions. There are those that believe that the church will be taken out of the earth before the tribulation. They are post-tribulational. There are those that believe that the church will be taken out in the midst of a coming tribulation, uh, halfway through it. And there are those that believe the church will be taken out at the end of the tribulation or at the time of the second coming. Now, many denominations today hold that position of being amillennial. They don't believe there'll be a literal millennium, and they believe that the rapture, if it is to occur at all, will be part of the second coming. And many denominations, in fact, probably the majority in this country, hold that position. The fundamentalists, if we can use that expression, which I would class myself happily in that group, uh, hold the position that... There is going to be a, a rapture of the church that will occur before the tribulation begins. And that will lead on to a seven year period of tribulation after which Jesus will return pre-millennial to set up his kingdom and rule and reign just as we're reading here in the book of Daniel. Now, really, all of this comes down to how you interpret the Bible. The fancy word that's used is hermeneutics, but it's really understanding whether we look at things allegorically or literally. Now, my contention is when we look at scripture, it is always fulfilled. Prophecies are always fulfilled literally, never allegorically. All the promises that Jesus gives are intended for literal fulfillment. The promise that the disciples would sit on 12 thrones, ruling the 12 tribes of Israel, makes absolutely no sense if it's allegorical. If it's literal and it refers to a, a throne uh, that's going to be established in Israel, then, of course, it does make sense. Um, so just to give you a brief overview, just a couple of comments on this, though. Daniel 2, as we've seen, tells us that this stone is going to become a mountain suddenly and not gradually. All right. It dismisses the amillennial position just on that, that point alone. You know, Christianity did not suddenly fill the whole earth. Um, so you can't talk about Christianity being the fulfillment of this prophecy. This is speaking of Jesus himself returning and establishing his kingdom. You know, through also though Christ came in the days of the Roman Empire, he didn't destroy it. And clearly in Daniel chapter two, the implication is very clear that Jesus, when this stone returns, these empires will be completely destroyed, never to rise again. Again, during Christ's time on earth, the Roman Empire did not have 10 kings rule at one time. And yet this dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, his statue, suggests that when Christ returns to establish his kingdom, that these 10 rulers, these 10 kings will be in existence and will be destroyed by him. Again, though, Christ is now the chief cornerstone to the church, which is what we're told in Ephesians 2, and a stone that causes offense to unbelievers in 1 Peter 2, 8, He's not yet a smiting stone, 
as he will be when he comes again, as this passage in Daniel 2 tells us. Yeah, that stone or the Messiah is going to crush and end all the kingdoms of this world. But the church has not and will not conquer the world's kingdoms. So the church is not a kingdom with a political mandate. Christ's coming millennium kingdom will be. And again, those scriptures you can see uh, referencing. In Isaiah chapter 2, just the first four verses, it shall come to pass in the last days. Now, this is again very clear from a timing perspective that the mountain, the same expression used in Daniel, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, come ye and let us go up uh, to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. So let's just get on to the last couple of verses. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel. Totally missing the point here. It's not Daniel. Daniel said twice at the beginning of this. It wasn't him. It was God that was giving this understanding, but he worshipped Daniel and commands that they should offer an oblation and sweet odours unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, of a truth, it is that your God is a God of gods. Interesting that he says that your God. Later, you're going to find out that Nebuchadnezzar will refer to him as his God. So there's a change of heart that is coming, but not yet. Uh, He's a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of the secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man. Well, actually, Daniel was already a great man because he trusted in a great God. You know, man's accolades mean nothing without God's approval. You know, man can promote, man can give you some sort of reward, certificate, whatever. It really means nothing unless you are in a place of relationship with God. But anyway, the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested the king and he set Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Just notice that for a second. Daniel requested the king and he sets and he uses their Babylonian names. This is one of the only times that Daniel does that. Why? Because he's speaking to King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar would know them or understand of them by their Babylonian names. So Daniel almost always uses their Hebrew names, except here when he's speaking to Nebuchadnezzar effectively. And so these three Hebrews, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, are set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Notice that as well. It's very important that will come out next time that their role is to look after Babylon itself. Now, Nebuchadnezzar ruled over a much larger area, but these three are given specific responsibility in that arena but we're told but Daniel sat in the gate of the king put in that position of king's counselor effectively or prime minister uh, is another way that commentators kind of referred to him uh, so uh, we'll build on that as we go through it next time but you start to see how God was working here unfortunately Nebuchadnezzar missed the point here that this coming kingdom is the kingdom that 
God is in control of, that God had appointed Nebuchadnezzar. And, you know, God is going to fill the whole earth with his kingdom. He's the kingdom that's going to be eternal and that the power and the glory need to go to God. Nebuchadnezzar will learn that lesson as we go forward. Let's bow our hearts. Father, thank you for this time, for this incredible reminder that you are in control of all things, the past, the present, the future, that there is no king, that there is no empire that has ever come to prominence without your approval. The Lord, you are the God that rules in the affairs of man, in the kingdoms of man. And we pray, Father, that we would have the faith and the confidence in you that Daniel did to realize that you're in charge of all things, Lord, and that we would trust you regardless of how the circumstances seem from the outside. Lord, I just thank you for Daniel and for his life, for his faith, for the example that he and his friends are to us today. And once again, Lord, help us to purpose in our hearts not to be defiled with the things of this world that we may be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.